We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Arsenal Vision podcast canceled and rendered irrelevant now that Tony Gale has already spent 90 minutes complaining about the performance. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. How the hell are we going to complain for 90 minutes about a win when Tony Gale spent 90 minutes complaining about our win? Uh, If you are not familiar with this, that means you might have been at the game or had the good fortune of not listening to Tony Gale do the Tony Gale, which is basically to rant incessantly, get names wrong, get facts and details wrong, and basically suggest that the one really horror challenge in the match, which was uh, Troy Deeney's, uh, was not only not a red card and not a yellow card, but not even a foul, and that the game is gone. Of course it has. Thanks, Tony. In any event, uh, there are things we can still complain about that he didn't get to, and we will try to do that, and maybe, maybe even celebrate another win on the way to Project 24. Uh, I am reliably informed that that is Clive's invention, despite Scott's every effort to steal it. And here to answer for himself is Scott. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Good morning. Howdy. It is uh, it is morning as we record this, indeed. Uh, when you are listening to it, it will most likely not be morning, unless you are listening to it in the morning, in which case, good morning. Paul is here. He's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. My name is Elliot Smith, as I mentioned earlier, so I will uh, save you... Uh, the redundancies. In any event, a little housekeeping. Uh, we had a halftime show. Ever since we started doing the halftime shows, we have never lost a game. You're welcome. Um, uh, actually, it's not just that we haven't lost a game. It's that every time we come on the halftime show and complain about a drab first half, we go on to score at least two goals in the second half and win the game. You're welcome. This is the kind of thing, Paul, Scott, this is the service. And you, you, not once has someone said thank you for your service, but that's okay. We, we can do this anyway. A um, couple other things. Uh, Tim's 
Uh, match previews continue to be fantastic. We have professional graphics editor now adding graphics to those uh, as opposed to my iMovie hacks. Um, His name those. is Laszlo. Laszlo Fulop. Yep, follow lots him. Lots of accents and stuff like a designer should have. Yeah, I mean, it is a designer's name, a designer's yeah. uh, uh, accented name, and also uh, someone who's actually good at what he does. So be sure to check those out. Um, at patreon.com forward slash Arsenal Vision Podcast. In any event, in the spotlight coming up this week on Mesut Ozil. That'll be on Patreon as well. So let's dive into the match. Uh, Paul, start with you. So, you know, we, we can dig into why this didn't work, why that didn't work, what partnerships are failing, yada, yada, yada. But this could have been so much different. I think one thing that seems pretty clear to me with the way Emery has us set up is that we are, especially against these smaller teams, and I'll put that in quotes because I think Watford are good. They've proven they're good this season, and this was never going to be an easy game per se, but the goal seems to be not pushing the boat out too far to get the first goal and leaving ourselves too exposed. And so that's led to some drab first halves. First goals are obviously so, so important to us given our defensive frailties. The more we have to extend ourselves and stretch ourselves and open the game, the more likely we are to get hit. So... The first goal being so important, we could have had it two separate occasions, both Lacazette. One, a penalty shout. Another, a missed chip. Let's take those in order really quickly. The first one, for you, you said it on the halftime show, but I want to cover it again for anyone who didn't listen then. You feel he needs to go down there. Uh, As they say in the war, it's all in the game, right? It's, it's just the way the game's played at the moment. You mentioned, you know, VAR and VAR addressing it. And as they say in my marriage, you've got to go down. You gotta go down. Yeah. Do they? I, I mean, um, my my wife says it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's probably because she prefers it to you flailing about on top of her. I I mean, neither are great. Let's be honest. Yeah, let's be this honest. Is, you know, it's yeah. got it's got really? weird already. <laughs> oh, quick! Oh, oh my like five God. minutes in Scott's here. in the room. At time of recording, it is like ten forty-five a.m. <laughs> local time. So I assure you, there's no, no alcohol has been consumed on my end. Anyway, Paul, let's get off uh, my wife <laughs> and and get back on You're to on your wife. I'm on your back. All right, can we please just talk about Lacazette's penalty is, show? Is this a devil's triangle? Oh, I'm sorry, we're not playing a drinking game. I'm sorry. Moving on. Devil's stack. Um, look, he's got, <laughs> he's just got to go down on your wife. Um, it's the way the game's played. You, how many times do we have to watch the team that wins the league dive all over the pitch to get penalties? Now, I think we should only dive when it's a proper tackle and a proper foul. Well, it's not a dive then, right? It's just the choice yeah. not to fight through it, really. I mean, it's... Yeah. Exactly. It, it's kind of like in cricket, you appeal to the ref, right? It's basically your appeal. It says, don't give me a... Don't play advantage. There's a real contact here. I want the fucking penalty. And unfortunately, I mean, we've seen too often the ref, the ref decides, well, you know, maybe the contact wasn't that big. Maybe he can ride it out, you know. It gets merged into this murkiness and you don't force him to make a call. Force him to make a call. You're punishing your team. I'm not being hard on Lacazette here. He's an honest guy. He's trying hard. He, I also think it's part of this season he's really come back strong, physical, aggressive. I think almost there's some of that in it. He's like he's going at defenses. He's looking to bully them and maybe he just hasn't hit the 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 clever switch when he needed to hear it. This was a tackle he needed to go down on because it was a real foul. wasn't some divey, posy, deli alley anticipating a contact. It was real. It was there. Go down. Get your fucking penalty. Move your team forward. Go 1-0 up. 
Yeah. I mean, I look, I it's not so much that I disagree. It's that I still think we are too easy on the refs when it comes to these kinds of situations. Because if, and, and maybe this is where VAR comes in, but if refs get this right, then diving starts to go out of the game. I mean, it never goes out sure. of the game completely. We can't fix it. And if we could, we would have fixed it in the last 10 years when we weren't diving for penalties. I mean, Theo apologizing for his dive however many years ago and swearing he'd never dive again, and he didn't. Well, I'm not sure it's... We haven't changed the way the game's played, so it's all in the game, yeah. as, Omar, as Omar will tell you. And, and of course, you know, once you go a goal up, and we saw it, and we've seen it in these past few games, the pattern of play starts to favor us um, significantly. But it's that first goal and the, the pattern of play prior to that first goal that has been problematic. So I'll stay with you just for a second, Paul, uh, relegating Scott to the periphery of the match, sort of the way Aubameyang is... Uh, rel- the podcast, the way Aubameyang was relegated to the periphery of the match, or Ozil or Ramsey, any of them, which we'll get to that. Um, as far as the the missed chip, I mean, he does well to nick the ball. In okay. your mind, yeah. I mean, I think that's a situation where you probably expect him to score. In your mind, is that a, a sitter he's blown per se, or or is that a tougher tougher chance than people make out? I think they're all tougher. It's the classic: you can't miss that, but you bloody can. Um, so, I mean, it was a good little chip, but it's narrow margins. And, you know, you got to delay. you got to disguise it. So, yeah, he should be able to hit that. But when you're pretending you're not about to chip the keeper, uh, you basically have a very short swing to hit it. So I, yeah. I just think it, it's 50-50. And that's, be, that's what I say. And to be fair, I mean, it's only a chance that comes about from him doing good work to get on the ball and, yeah, and get in. Yeah, get it all on his own. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Scott, it just so happens we don't have to guess at whether you can or can't miss it. We have the sweet, cold embrace of statistics to free us from uh, what was really an inappropriate start to the podcast. So what is the XG of that Lacazette chance? Um, so just to caveat in the beginning, um, this is probably an edge case where XG is tough, um, especially for chances that are this far out. So one of the biggest factors going into XG is the distance to goal and the angle. Um, because this shot came outside of the box, in general, those are low-quality chances. Um, so I think this one is going to be better than what the XG says. Just wanted to get that out there. So this one actually came out as rated as a, a .22 chance. Um, it doesn't necessarily know at this situation with the on-ball um, event data that this is a, a one-on-one with the keeper and that he doesn't have any pressure on him necessarily from other defenders. So I think you know mentally you could probably bump this one up to maybe you know a 40% chance or so. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a good chance, but it's not a, a gimme. But, you yeah. know, you expect your big strikers to be able to make the big plays. Sure, and the point two two just for people that, you know, are still kind of coming to grips with XG, basically means 22% of the time that kind of chance gets converted. But to Scott's point, uh, a lot of the reason for that registering so low is the distance to goal and, and XG not taking into account some of the game state so and position of players and things like that. So let's dive into just some of the data real quick, Scott, and then we can move into sort of more subjective analysis. But uh, just objectively, I know your model had Watford better on XG, but you are our stats expert, so we will back your statistics always and forever um, in the true show of tribalism that is the world of football. Uh, what did you have the XG overall for this match? 
So I had it uh, two point eight for Wofford, one point six to to Arsenal. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen some you know where uh, Wofford was as low as one point nine, and I've seen other ones that have gone up to almost two point five. So in general, Wofford are the the better team for this. It really depends on how you rate some of the the big chances that they had um, in the second half on you know how good of chances those were. Um, but I don't think there's really any way to say that you know Wofford didn't deserve to get something out of this match almost. I mean, that that is a paddling. That's a lot of chances. I, I think you said in your By the Numbers column for uh, Ars Blog, which everyone should read, that it was uh, six big chances for Watford, which is an absolute monumental amount, the most they've had this season. As far as by half, do you happen to have the XG broken down by half? Um, I can kind of figure it out. So it looks like Watford was about uh, just under 0.5 um, at halftime. Arsenal were uh, basically the Lacazette chance. They were about 2.25. Um, so everything in the second half, it was, you know, both teams played better in the second half, at least attacking wise. Um, but Watford generated almost all of their XG in the second half. So let me ask you, I mean, do you buy the argument that maybe some of the reasons for our lack of fluency in attack is by design that Emery is setting us up to play the long game, so to speak, that um, he, he trusts our supremely talented frontline to eventually make something, maybe even out of nothing, but that the priority is not to concede early chances and early goals that force us to chase the game? I mean, is that trying to find a silver lining in a cloud, or is that something that maybe both on data or what you've been seeing is supported? Well, I mean, it, it does seem that Arsenal are starting out slower, so maybe it is that they're going out with an instruction to not make big mistakes. And, you know, if you get a good goal to go ahead, that's awesome, but we're not going to go out and um, leave ourselves super open at the back to give these, you know, lower teams a chance to be able to play on that deep block and not have to come out. So if you kind of keep it tight for the first half, you know, make them come out for the second half and want to attack a little bit more. Maybe things open up. So maybe it is a strategy. Uh, maybe this is, you know, post hoc. You know, trying to justify our slow starts. Uh, it's hard to say, but I, I hope that there's something a, me- a method to this madness because the first half starts are a little frustrating. But yeah. that it could also be, um, if that penalty is called in that fourth minute, you know, things change quite a bit. I don't know. It's hard to you know go back and say this happens because of this. It's, you know, everything is dependent on each other in soccer. So it's a, a tough thing to do. It, it is. And I, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, anytime you draw any conclusion, you can be accused of agenda. And ultimately, we keep winning the games. And that's the most important thing. So I want to get into this just really quickly with you, Paul. I mean, the, the player who seems to be the odd man out, and we'll get to Aubameyang and Ozil as well, but it is Aaron Ramsey. I mean, at this point, if this is the role it's hard to justify his inclusion at this point, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I feel bad for the guy. I don't think everything he did was bad. I don't even think he played badly. It's just he's kind of shown for the ball in the areas that other players are shown for the ball. Um, and I think the manager, uh, I hope the fact that, uh, again, nothing against Ramsey, but I hope the fact that, that he yanked Ramsey early uh, was the sign which we've been waiting for, that he's willing to cross the Rubicon, Mm -hmm. which, as you will know from your Latin history, was when Caesar decided to cross the Rubicon River, heading back towards Rome, declaring his intention to be Caesar. I I think you've confused it. I think that's the Rubik's Cube, and the Rubicon is a square thing with colored dots on it that you turn until all the dots are the same color. Damn it, Wikipedia. Yeah. Damn it. Anyway, moving on, yeah. 
So uh, I think the time has arrived, especially if it has the same eye on it that we do for Liverpool, the Liverpool game, uh, that now's the time that he needs to... One can rationalize what we've done, what we've done so far, uh, if he now makes the decision. Uh, but if he continues to to uh, gently tinker, and maybe he hasn't even tinkered for a little while, in his formations when it's clear that, you know, we'll get to the substitutions and the Iwobi move, but it's clear that changing things up changed the game. And so one hopes we've reached that point without worrying who the names are to get beyond the names because we've uh, been picking the best part of, uh, I guess you could say five names in the front six because we're afraid to put in, an, if you w- want to call it a non-name, somebody like an Iwobi or, my God, Mkhitaryan, who's a, a name in his own right, but seems to be the forgotten man, as always. And we just have knuckled down to making the choice that I think is clear to everybody. And, uh, I mean, some might say it's only to be expected with Unai Emery. I mean, this is a guy who, in his own name, has six vowels, but only three consonants. And one of those six is a false vowel. So I don't know what you guys were expecting, but a- I think as the always, time has come. You've taken yeah. some astute insight and ruined it with some pointless <laughs> drivel at the end. Um, <laughs> but I am still somehow going to stay with you for one quick follow-up. That was my signal for you to rescue me and, and bring it to Scott. But okay, go on. No, I'm going to stay with you and watch you flounder uh, in, in payback for your crude comments about my, my life partner. Um, yeah. So is it possible that Emery has eyes, can see that the pattern of play isn't working, can see that this system is problematic, but has looked at it and said, look, I have to keep Aubameyang, Lacazette, Ramsey, Ozil all happy. These are big stars who are not going to accept being a rotational option in a club like Arsenal. They're just not. And if I make them feel that they are now a rotational option, I create a a stick for my back with them. I create a problem in the dressing room. So here's what I'm going to do. I got this run of home games. I got this run of games against teams I think I can beat. I'm confident I can beat. And I'm just going to start them all in these games and make them feel that they are my first team choices, that they are, you know, that they are getting the place befitting of their stardom and their stature. But when the games get a little harder, I'm going to use that capital I've banked and I'm going to start rotating them out and going to lineups that are a little more balanced and get me a little more of the dynamic I want. I mean, is that possible that, that he is that he is building up some political capital with his big players so that when the time comes to make hard choices, they won't feel uh, disenchanted? I think it's a very good rationale. I think there's a, an additional twist, which is he mentioned something in the last week or so about players, uh, something r- referring to how it's also how other players in the dressing room seem see the selections. In other words, players have to prove it to themselves. And I think in the negative sense, he wants the squad in general to see that a big player has played himself in or has played himself out of the selection to obviate the issues in terms of politics, ego, etc. And A, you could say he's proved that picking the front the big name front five isn't giving everybody the results they were looking for. So the team will be looking for change and B you can begin to separate 
the name or names that need to be rested to see how things work without them. So yeah, uh, they're they're kind of proving the case for him, and it, it's a cat and mouse game, right? You want you want a manager be t- to be decisive. On the other hand, you don't want him making problems he doesn't need to have, as you alluded to. He we've had some time and we've been winning. Had we been losing these games, uh, the Rubicon might have come might have come a lot quicker. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I yeah, mean, there are some it, people that you can go on YouTube and see this who can, can can finish a Rubicon in like 30 seconds. It's incredible. You should look up a video of that. Um, my best time is actually 45 seconds. Are you serious? I've never finished a Rubicon, not once ever. Um, uh, so I had a bet with my wife because she, she saw uh, Justin Bieber on TV doing it and thought he was very smart, and I'm very stubborn. And I said I could learn the Rubik's Cube and do it faster than Justin Bieber. Again, you've said it wrong. It's a Rubicon. Um, Scott, so let's use data to support the actual arguments as opposed to whatever that was that Paul just contributed. Um, I I think it seems clear to me that whatever you think of Aubameyang, and obviously I love the guy, absolutely love him, and think he is potentially the most important player in our team who's being absolutely wasted, for the team to really tick in attack. I like that ticking attack um <laughs> you you have to get ozil on the ball and you have to get him involved and that's where this formation has been letting us down and we've had plenty of chances to see the difference from half to half when ozil gets to play in the 10 versus out wide so i, I believe you said in our everton game it ranked like 93rd out of 95 games you had data for in terms of his worst performances in uh, your offensive value added metrics I'm curious where this one came in and if there's maybe a bright line again from when he was playing on the wing versus when he moved more central. Yeah, so there definitely is a, a, a noticeable difference in the where he played in the match. Um, I don't have the exact ranking, but um, looking at the, the offensive value added for the match, um, he's back up towards the, the top of the list for um, the stats that I have. So Alexander Lacazette led the team, um, primarily driven by his two big chances that he had, um, but Mesut Ozil was uh, second best on the team so that's you know nice to see him back at the top, and almost all of that came in the second half. So he had 0.65, and of that, the second half it was 0.5. So it was a, a big night and day difference between um, the two halves on how much influence he had on the match. Um, I think typically this would probably be um, in the 60th, 70th percentile. So um, not one of his best games, but you know above average. But but if you had extrapolated out and he had continued the first half numbers it would have been down near the bottom again, right? So we can at exactly, least Exactly, yeah, he would have exactly. Right, so we could draw some conclusions that the move central and into the 10 position uh was a a spark, an impetus for that improvement potentially. Or am I reading yeah, and I too think much actually, into that? One of, the, one of the things that I actually did notice is that so starting the second half, there was a, a tactical switch um, where um, it looked like Aubameyang moved right and Ozil moved left. Um, almost um, exclusively um, this season, Arsenal have a attack down the left. I think you know almost 40% of their attacks come down the left, and I think it's like 20 down the center and then 15 down the right. Um, so whoever's on that right really gets isolated. Um, so in the first you know, 45 minutes, um, the only real places that Ozil could get the ball um, were deep. Um, so he was ca- collecting a lot of the balls around the halfway line in the center circle. Um, and then he was floating a little bit to the left because, you know, that's mm-hmm. just the he's a, attracted to the ball um, more than anything. So he, he did move left. But I mean, partially, I think that he is given license to roam. So he but he was sticking to the right more often than he was in the second half. 
Um, but then in that 45 to 63 minute um, range, it's almost exclusively down the left. Um, his touches move forward, um, and he's in that happy space for him, you know, between the lines. And it just really looked to, to unlock him. Um, and then after Ramsey went off and um, Awobi came in, um, he did have a, a free roll. His um, touches were pretty equal between the the left and the right, so his shows his average touch pretty much in the middle. Um, but that's a, a little bit of a, a misnomer there because there wasn't a lot of touch central. It was you know him being able to float wherever the ball was and get involved, which is nice to see, um, and definitely being able to um, influence the game. A ton more passes. He was our, our leader in passes into the box, which is good to see. Um, his overall final third passing numbers were, were up again, so it was a, a very impressive performance for me um, in the second half. Yeah, and obviously getting a goal is going to influence that offensive value added as well. Obviously a big, big part of it, but one thing that I saw that was happening, and I'm curious if you picked up on this, it looked like we were doing something I, I don't think I'd seen us do before, and that is that Shaka and Torreira, at times, were swapping sides. And when Shaka switched over to the right, he had a lot more access to Ozil. And as a result, in the Everton game, uh, Shaka passed to Ozil just seven times. In this game, 24 times. So I'm curious if you saw that switching and if you think that that might be a solution to help vary the buildup because uh, our left side bias gets balanced out a little based on whichever side Shaka is occupying. Yeah, I think that definitely um, played a role. Um, I also did notice that both of them were kind of taking turns as the the person that, that dropped deep to play between the center backs to, to collect and build play. You mean Torreira so versus Shaka? Exactly, yeah, both of agreed. those two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good to kind of see them both um, taking turns in the role. I think that varies um, the looks that we're giving um, the defenders um, so they can't really just key on, all right, this is the one thing we're going to do and we know exactly where they're going to play. Um, so it can kind of work off the patterns a little bit more so they can anticipate the move. So if they're switching, I think that's positive. Um, and I think it is good to, to get more people involved. It, having such a big left side bias um, isn't great. Um, you need to be able to, to really balance out the team. And I think that's partially, um, you know, just the way the team is built. Um, Xhaka gets so much of the ball and he's left footed. So everything goes left. So moving him, or giving him the chance to move to the right, I think will help balance out which way the attacks come down. So that's good to see. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I, I love Nacho, and I think he's a great player and all that, but I definitely think Bellerin is a special footballer, and we are not getting much out of him in the attack right now. I mean, the astonishing thing is Ozil, who played a, a big portion of the game, presumably, as our right side forward. We, we've been tracking the statistic all season versus Mkhitaryan playing and you know, giving like 14, 15 passes in a game to Bellerin. Ozil passed to Bellerin one time in this match, and I believe Bellerin passed to him four times. So almost no activity between your right-sided fullback and your right-sided or nominally right-sided forward. That doesn't seem like a, a, a good way to vary your attack. And you know, maybe there's a tactic there. Maybe there's something that, that Emery is trying to do by switching to a left-sided bias. Maybe it's to, to try to get Aubameyang involved. It certainly isn't working. And, Paul, I mean, when we talk about Aubameyang and Lacazette, one thing that everybody seems to agree, whether you're in the camp that Aubameyang should start up front or you're in the camp that Lacazette clearly should because of his, his output and he has earned the right to keep that place, everybody believes that when these two are playing together, um, they should play together because they have this great understanding and they look for each other and they link up well. But that's kind no. of a mirage. It, it really hasn't been happening. And in fact, in this game, Aubameyang passed to Lacazette one time and Lacazette to Aubameyang one time. So surely, if they're going to play together, we need to see that involvement for it to make any sense. I mean, are you coming to any 
further conclusions about this Obamiang left wing situation? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think it, it still needs to be trialed with now with our two CMs and with somebody else on the right side, for example. Uh, but I've never bought the 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 love fest between uh, the two strikers, which I believe is real. I just don't think it buys you anything on the football pitch. I think it buys you something in the squad and the mood and the atmosphere. And it's made Emery's job a lot easier uh, to incorporate the strikers and to try different things without them throwing huffies. Um, so I think it's bought him a lot of buy-in. The reality is on the pitch, strikers should make their decisions on only one basis. What's the most likely to get them or their team a goal? Not how does this guy feel or how well are we getting on or any of that shit. That's why so many uh, frenemies have played um, a striker together or, or played in a team together. You don't have to get on. In fact, it can. you could argue it can be just as, as counterproductive. So I've never really bought it. So tactically, um, uh, our, our good friend Calvin on the Twitters had a phrase, which I think he, he termed a weak-sided player. And uh, Obama Yang is kind of the non-ball side player. He's the guy you want ghosting in to get on the end of the, the uh, cutback. And actually, we scored from two cutbacks in this game. And when we had Mikatarian in the in the team, we had cutbacks too. And I think that's what we're missing. If we don't have a player over on the right side or on the left side, if we switch everything around, if we don't have the Mikatarian role, we got no cutbacks. And I don't I don't know what you're going to do with Aubameyang. He's he's going to play it out from midfield. He's going to pick it up and dribble his way from the left side. That's not what he does. And you know, we'll, we'll, there's a lot of topics tied up in that, but Iwobi comes on and there's the whole discussion about what did he really contribute. Well, quite a lot once he got switched over to the Mkhitaryan spot and we scored two Mkhitaryan goals and they looked kind of easy. Now, part of that may be because Watford had exhausted themselves to some point, but we were through them like a knife through butter well, on we- 80 minutes when Iwobi impersonated Mkhitaryan and two cutback goals bang it in that, that could as easily have been Ob- Aubameyang coming in on either one of those and that's where he makes sense from the left yeah I mean look we, we can get to the goals in more detail as, as we go but I mean I, I do think you know having just mentioned the lack of involvement and use of Bellerin and you know that first goal comes from him finally getting a runner on his side to go beyond the defense and he plays Iwobi into that space and the cutback leads to the goal or the, the cross I mean it's not so much a cutback and Iwobi's run is identical to a Mkhitaryan run exactly it, it, it's the out. kind of run a, a, a sort of wide forward makes you know in that half space in that channel that Ozil doesn't make and when the ball goes out to, to Bellerin on the rare chance he gets it when Ozil's playing out there what you can see is he doesn't have anyone else to play it to. So he pulls it back and winds up going to the defender or going back to the midfield. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll come to the goals in a bit, but I, I want to sort of cover the game in a little more chronological way. So, Scott, obviously one of the big, big moments here in this match is the the check injury and Leno coming in. I thought check had done really well. As always, his distribution was poor. I mean, it, it is poor. And so I'm curious to get your sort of early takes on Leno's performance in his first Premier League match. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought that, well, one the one thing that we were always a little bit worried about when we brought him up is his ability to shot stop. Um, and I thought that actually in this match, he did a really good job, um, you know, making saves. Um, both him and Czech had a lot of opportunities, and that's worrying. Um, <laughs> well, the but, free kick save was extraordinary. Was it from a free kick? It was, yeah. yeah. So it was the free kick, and Dini was right there and redirected it towards the corner. And in that situation, you have almost no time to react to that. And yeah, getting that one around the post was really good. Um, I thought I had Wofford's shots on target at 2.7. Um, so basically, between the two keepers, they saved almost three goals, which is really impressive. Um, so I was very happy to see that. Um, you know, looking at the the passing numbers, I have uh, uh, Leno with a, a passing value added of point um, negative point zero six, but Czech was um, a negative point zero one one. Um, so neither of them really um, stood out um, passing the ball. Um, I do remember before uh, Czech went off that I think his his long passing here. I'm just pulling it up right now. Uh, was absolutely atrocious, um, which is a concern, and I'm hoping that. Um, you know, with the new guy in, um, behind the goal, things will it's be been better. A feature of us Jay. all season, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jay Leno is. Isn't that what they, the commentator exactly, called him? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah check or the was other two, guy was two of thirteen on his long passes. Um, not great um, at all. Um, just six of seventeen on his forward passes um, overall. You know, you you really want your your keeper to do better than that because otherwise the ball is just coming right back. Um, you know, before you even have a chance to set your defense. Um, Leno, when he came on, he was 12 of 18 overall passing. Um, his long passes, he was 3 of 8, so still not great, but at least a, a little bit better. You know, less attempts and completed one more, so that's always good. Um, his overall passing, I think, is a little bit better. I'd like to see him, you know, build a connection with his um, center backs and the midfielders to be able to, to pass a little bit better. Uh, Wofford did seem to be um, pushing up um, quite a bit. They weren't necessarily pressing super hard, um, but they weren't sitting back. So some of these passes were under pressure. So it's a little bit hard to, to draw too much of a conclusion from one half, but I think that that's going to be uh, an improvement over check. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I, I certainly think that check had done enough to hold on to this role, but now is Leno's chance. And, you know, the, the manager was asked, let me rephrase, the coach was asked after the game uh, about Leno coming in, and he basically said that, uh, you know, he's impressed with Leno, but that he hadn't earned his way in, and now he has his chance to do that. So, you know, we'll see what he does from here. But the hope certainly, because I don't think you can do a whole lot better than check has done in terms of shot stopping, but the hope is that his superior um, use of the ball will help with our build-up and our fluency. The other thing I think we've seen from Leno is a willingness to be a bit of a uh, sweeper-keeper, and Czech is less adept at that. So you know that may help snuff out counterattack or long ball opportunities that we can be vulnerable to with a high line. I will say Leno had one little worrying attempt to come get a ball where I think it was actually Mustafi who kind of bodied him out of the way, unsurprisingly. So you know we'll have to see how he does physically with balls in the air and set pieces and things like that because I think Czech has been pretty good there. But overall, a good start for him. And we're going to need him because, if anything, right now it looks like we're going to continue to give up big chances. And the reason for that is our defending. Paul, it is maybe the best news about Socrates or Socrates's injury uh, is that it's given a chance for Holding to come in and show that he can do a job because the man who continually cannot do a job is Shodran Mustafi. Um, his comedy stylings are certainly uh, laughable, but they are not enjoyable. And I, I think this was another performance for uh, for him to get in the sea over at least many, many times. At this point, is the good news, I mean, presuming that 
uh, Socrates's injury is not long-term, and I certainly wouldn't expect it to be. This was kind of a surprise absence that Holding has come in, Shoney can do a job, and potentially create a situation where Emery could feel confident dropping Mustafi when, when Socrates is back? Uh, yeah, you can make that case. I thought I did think Holding was really good in this game. I was a little critical of of his some agricultural passes and clearances the previous uh, the Carabao Cup tie, but I thought he was very very good in this. Very uh, it looked like he'd grown into the ro- role again. So he's definitely put down a marker there. Um, I did, so uh, uh, not that I have a totally different view on Mustafi, but I didn't actually think it was totally terrible in this. He had a couple of moments, a couple of Mustafis as we call them. Um, uh, I, I think the problem is he does a lot of good stuff. Uh, and he actually suits our style for the most part when he's not fucking up. So uh, it, I don't think our defense is terrible. And I think part of the reason it's not terrible is also because of Mustafi. He's, he does a lot of good things. Um, his distribution in this wasn't great. And he Mustafied a couple of moments. But outside of, outside of the fuck-ups, um, I thought he was pretty good. Um, the problem so is much I, I like a goalkeeper, Paul. Yeah, isn't it the case that sure. as a center back, you'd almost rather have a, a, a six out of ten center back who doesn't make killer mistakes than an eight out of ten center back who makes two killer mistakes a game? I mean, you think about yeah. a Laura, Loris Carius at, at Liverpool, right? I have no idea if he was a good keeper for that for them or not in general. I just know that he made some very high profile screw ups that made him untenable as a, as a keeper there, right? So I mean, isn't that the problem? Yeah. Yeah, and you know it, it talks to uh, kind of a steady, steely mentality in your defense. Uh, you want to know you can rely on somebody. You want the Saul, you know, Saul Campbell fucked up a few things. You go back and watch uh, highlights with Tony Adams in it. He he fucked up plenty, but there was a kind of there was a mentality that came with it, a veneer of we don't fuck up that. Mustafi has kind of the other piece of it. He he probably has more than his share of Mustafis, and he just makes you feel a bit jittery. It's kind of like the Almunia factor, right? It's not that Almunia never did some good goalkeeping along the way. He had his issues, and more than that, he made people feel nervous. And I think Mustafi has the effect of not only Mustafiing a, a couple to each game, but he gives people the Mustafis, including the the the, uh, the crowd and those around him. But I, I just don't think he's this huge calamity. It's the way it is. This is how we talk about footballers. But in reality, I don't think he's the huge calamity we talk about. Um, and our defense was, for the most part, pretty good, though it called on the keepers. Um, uh, the, the other thing when we talk about the big chances they had... I actually felt there was almost none of those chances they should have scored. Um, I think the keepers, uh, partly because of the keepers, and these keepers did really well, or they saved shit. So, uh, kind of... I mean, was it over- Fortune who misses the the yep. one-on-one situation? I mean, that that's a spin Success. away from being a goal. Yeah, yeah but it, that's a tough one. I mean, and Leno comes out well, and he stays upright. He doesn't actually have a lot of. Uh, I think that's a tougher one than um, Lacazette in the first half because get it over the top of the keeper, you're clear. But uh, you know, Leno comes out big. He he stays upright. 
and covers a lot of the the goal. So I think overall our defense was pretty good. And, uh, you know, w- with the no- the volume of bigger chances they had, sure, they probably should have got a goal or two. But uh, on an individual basis, I, in each case, I don't think we dodged too many bullets. No, I, the only thing I'll say, and we know this, you know, you look at the best teams, especially Manchester City, and they do sometimes give up good chances. But overall, yep. their shot suppression is unrivaled. Sure. And that the best sure. way to be a good team long term is suppress shots. I mean... Watford did have yeah. 14 shots and six big chances. And so, you know, whether yeah. you think individually any of them are missable, over time, you'd like to be better at shot suppression and better at chance suppression than that, even if, you know, even if you suspect that those chances are savable because you know the finishing pixie will eventually go against you. Right now, she's going for us. So uh, I think that's very fair. And let me just quickly then, you've helped me get to where my real point was, which was, I don't think we fucked anything up in defense, right? Right. Uh, Our problem was we, as a team, allowed them way too many opportunities. It ain't the defenders, it's it's our losing control of the game as a team. And this is where Mustafi drives me crazy. And I've used the word coward before, and I know some people have taken me up on that, so that's too strong a thing to say of someone. Well, not just you, other people. Many people uh, say terrible things to me constantly, and that that was certainly a a time when they did. And it's almost always warranted, I should mention. Um, But in the case of Mustafi, I think what I'm trying to get to at the bottom of this is I, I can't help but feel that Mustafi makes the lazy choice rather than doing the work. He'll dive in rather than run. He'll he'll commit a foul rather than contesting in a in a more physical way. And a great example is the free kick he gives away where he goes over the top. You know the one I'm talking about that almost results I in do. a goal? Yep. That is just a brainless, lazy thing to do. Because he wasn't going to be favored to win the ball and he was going to maybe get turned or maybe have to, you know, be physical in a challenge there. And so what does he do? He just gives away a free kick instead. Um, There was the one where he goes to ground and he misses and holding thankfully comes in and cleans up. Maybe coward is the wrong word. It is. Maybe it's lazy. Because, well, so so let me ask you, Paul, um, how do you explain a player who consistently chooses what seems to be the ill-advised but easier option rather than putting in the work, that's all it is. It's staying on your feet, it's running with the man, it's staying touch tight, it's not switching off the work and concentration it takes to be a professional center back. He plays to his strengths. He's actually very good at going in there and nipping the ball. And sometimes he'll, most of the time it works out for him. He slides in, gets the ball, knocks it away. He's nipping at their heels. He's proactive. He gets ahead of them. Uh, The free kick he gave away, all right, it's stupid, but I can show you pictures of any fucking defender from Tony Adams to Okay, but but again, he, you know, uh, right, but, you you know, uh, the fact that other people have done ill-advised things, you know, it's kind of what about him, isn't it? Is is because our centre-backs came out saying, we're not going to take shit from Dini and co. We're going to be in their faces. We're going to be aggressive. Sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. You'll see a, a granite chaka in seasons gone by giving away a yellow here and there. Um, you know, those are the players. The center backs and the DM are the guys 
they're, they're the only beefy guys on the team. They're the guys who are going to get stuck in a bit, and sometimes they get it wrong. They make the wrong I call. I mean this so with no that's disrespect. Wrong call. I think you yeah. are giving me a perfectly valid theory that doesn't fit the details and facts of the player because this is a guy who I've seen hang a lazy leg in the box, slide in when sliding in is totally uncalled for, and he wasn't going to get it. I've seen him dive I'm not, in. I'm not saying he's a no, perfect no, no, defender. Right, I'm not I'm saying, saying he is, doesn't mistaffy it. Right. I guess but what I'm saying is, is... There is nothing about this performance to me that is lazy or cowardly or taking the easy route he's li- they're up for this they know Watford is aggressive they know Watford gets more turnovers in the their attacking half than any other team and they know they're going to be in their face and they know co- that Deeney's waiting to co- tell them they have no balls at the end of the game the problem was not that he was not up for it or not getting stuck in or being lazy or taking the easy way, it's that maybe he was a little too amped. So, uh, again, I'm not, I don't want to be Mustafi's great defender, but it, it, you know, unfortunately, it's the nature of these things. Somebody's either great or they're shit, and I don't think he's either. I think he's in the middle. He has some liabilities and he has many strengths, but as we kind of said, we discount the strengths. He's, he's, he he gave us a lot throughout the game in terms of nipping in, being proactive, getting in their getting in their faces, being aggressive. And he's a small guy, so sometimes yeah. it's you know he's going to expose himself. Like in this situation, he went in too heavy because he's smaller. I, I guess it, you know what we're going to have to agree to disagree just yeah. because I think what I, you know it's not just the tackles too. It's the it's the careless passes that go out out in a touch for no reason under no pressure. You know, I guess, look, and why don't we bring Scott and get sort of a, a, a someone to settle the debate. But what I will say, sometimes with some of these players, I kind of wonder, like, if a neutral listened to this, if they'd be like, really, you guys are even debating this? You know what I mean? Like, we see our players so much, and we internalize so much of what they do, and we want to see the best in them, that sometimes I think we we dig out nuggets of quality in a player that, to someone who's maybe not as invested would see just as as probably not being good enough. I mean, Scott, why don't you settle sure. the debate? And almost yeah. all neutrals neutrals go with narrative. Sorry, Scott. No, that's true, and it's it's also because they just don't watch as much. But I think we are guilty of doing the opposite in some cases, which is breathing too Going much too life much. into. Yeah, exactly. And I I am I am never going to be guilty of that. Thankfully, um, uh, Scott, for you, the Mustafi mistakes, the Mustafi play generally. I mean, is this is this a case of not seeing the good in a player and overemphasizing his flaws, or or do you tend to agree with me more that the the mistakes he does make are of the um, unacceptable variety from a player who has no brain should be fired out of a cannon into the sun? I think that my stance, and I think I want to stay consistent here, is that Mustafi is the kind of player that can do really good things, have really good games. But also, when some of those risky moves that he does don't come off, he can be um, bafflingly bad. Um, I think that this um, situation, this game, uh, was much more of a situation where he did the bad things. Um, the one that really um, you know sticks out in my mind, um, you know, you already mentioned the foul that that led to the Dini chance. Um, but then he also has the the place where he tries to to play an offside, or he just loses his marker on success. He just basically lets him run by him and it's a great situation where holding is aware that his partner has no brain and uh sees the play coming and is super quick to get across and makes a very important block because that was a pretty simple little pass that 
really just cut open the defense, and you really hoped that something like that wouldn't happen. So that was something that was uh, really obvious. And then even the, the there was a chance for Andre Gray, uh, where Dini um, has the ball. You know, he moves it. They had it right at the edge of the 18-yard box. They play a little bit of a, a combination. Uh, Dini drops a little bit further and then plays a, a through ball right between uh, Mustafi and Bellerin, where, again, Mustafi is just not really able to track his player you know his player goes to make a run but i think that one was a, a little bit hard on him to, to say that that was his fault that was just a, a really good pass and a great little move that they did but there's just so many of those little situations that he does where you know he makes plays where it's if it comes off it's amazing if it doesn't he looks really bad and he puts the rest of his defense under enormous pressure and i think that's where you're talking about um, you know, he can have the eight out of 10 games, but he can have a lot of the four out of 10 games. And honestly, as a defender, you'd rather have someone who might be a little bit more limited, but gives you consistently good defense instead of someone who can be amazing or absolutely atrocious. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I, I like to be measured in my response to things, give players a chance, you know, try to look at the, the issue and the player in 360 degree perspective. Um, having said that, uh, and being distracted by the astounding amount of microphone noise that Paul is generating right now. Uh, I'm sorry I about think... that. We're turning, tunneling into KSE Enterprises to kidnap uh, Cranky's wife. Oh, great. Let's put that yeah. on, Mike. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but I, I, I think with Mustafi, I have to admit, I have reached a point where the the mistakes he makes now are just so glaring to me, and I, I feel that not trying another center-back partnership is a little bit negligent at this point. And, and it's not to say that Mustafi is a useless footballer, although I'd be happy to say it if someone asked me. I, I just think we, we have reached the point where we probably have to try something different. And also, if we want to have this meritocracy we talk about, I think you can make an argument that Mustafi has played his way to a, a little bit of a timeout. Let's take a timeout. We'll take a quick break. And then we're going to finish just 10 or 15 quick minutes on the, the important moment of the match, which we've saved the best for last, the Awobi influence, that swap, how it impacted the game, and, and whether it yet again is a way forward. By the way, if you have not yet signed up for The Athletic, you need to do it. Just do it. James just wrote an awesome article on Mkhitaryan and the importance of getting him involved and the, the risks of leaving him out. I have one on the Aubameyang-Lacazette conundrum coming out this week. Uh, Theathletic.com is a subscription site, so I will tell you that, but no autoplay ads, no advertisements at all whatsoever. Uh, most of the websites out there right now that are ad-supported are are just really tough to read because of that and because a lot of it's clickbait. Five things we learned from this, you know, transfer rumors, just the worst kind of content. And, uh, you know, the very few exceptions to that. The Athletic has some of the best writers out there. Graham Hunter, uh, James, I mentioned Gunnerblog. Uh, I am writing for them, uh, for better or worse. Uh, the managing director of Stats Bomb is writing. I mean, there's just so many great writers. And if you like other sports as well, 700 articles a week across the world of sports. So uh, something really special there. If you are interested in the football coverage, George Koreshi, who was uh, the head of the, the Howler, um, he is the managing editor for the football coverage over there. And if you use the the uh, link, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Uh, nope. Yep, that's it. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You'll get a free trial, first of all. So you can just go read James' article. You can read mine if you want. See what you think. Uh, you'll also get 30% off if you continue. So give him a shot. See what you think. We'll take a break. Tell you about some beer that you absolutely should drink and sign up for because it's the best. And when we come back, we'll talk Alex Owobi. But right now, it's time to tell you about our favorite monthly craft beer discovery club. In fact, it is the world's most popular craft beer discovery club, beer52.com. You're going to want to go to beer52.com forward slash vision right now. The reason you're going to want to do that 
is you're going to get a free case of craft beer. Free. A free case of craft beer. You're even going to get a copy of Ferment Magazine and a snack. So you're getting all that for free. Just pay £2.95 shipping and you'll be upgraded to free next day shipping, which is great. Eight incredible craft beers, a magazine, a snack, no-brainer. And I know all about no-brainers. Trust me, I have no brain. In any event, this is a chance for you to discover some of the best beers from around the world. And right now you get to take advantage of uh, the Raise the Bar competition. Beer 52 search for the UK's best new small brewers in partnership with the London Craft Beer Festival. So you'll enjoy the likes of Unity's 7% Export Stout, Boxcar's Belgian IPA, and West by 3's Mothership with Passion Fruit. It's only available in the UK, which makes me very sad. But if you live in the UK, it should make you very happy because by going to beer52.com forward slash vision, not only do you make us happy podcasters, but you make yourself a happy owner of free craft beer. And so that is obvious. By the way, uh, one thing we love about beer52.com, they have a five-star rating on Trustpilot. So you know you are going with a very trustworthy company. Again, the most popular monthly craft beer delivery service. So take advantage of it. Beer52.com forward slash vision. Go there right now, get your free case of craft beer, you're going to love it. Okay, we're back. Uh, Took the break at the very tail end of the pod, which is a little unusual, but uh, I realized I had forgot to do it. So (laughs) there it is. That's the exact reason why we did it. Um, But it's because the conversation was flowing so beautifully, and uh, hopefully it will flow beautifully with this last little bit, which is important, because it was probably the moment that changed the game. Paul, I'm actually kind of curious about this there was a decent amount of debate online uh, some people mm. are saying that the claim that Iwobi's influence changed the game is pure narrative that when he came in for the first few minutes actually Watford had the better run of play they created the better chances but ultimately I cannot escape the conclusion that Iwobi's influence not just his personal influence but just the fact of him being on the pitch moving Ozil uh, more central creating a little more of that balance and then eventually Welbeck coming in to enhance that even further is really what turned the game. Um, for me, some of it is a Wobi, and some of it is just the the way it influences the balance of the system and getting players into more natural positions. So for you, how much is narrative? How much is influence? What did you make of a Wobi's performance? Uh, so when he first came on, he was on the left. Um, he put in, The only thing he really did in, in his first seven minutes or so was he put in a cross from the left-hand side. It was actually a really good cross, but to nobody, right into the six-yard box. And then he was kind of – he was a non-presence. Uh, we've always generally liked to will be from the left, but uh, we weren't playing in their final third. So he was basically uh, with us falling back. In fact, we lost momentum in the game. It was uh, before he came on – we were we kind of had them on the rack a little bit in a semicircle around their box, but we couldn't get into their box. So I'm sure the manager thought we need somebody to run at them and to make some runs, but it ain't how it played out. We basically got pushed back into our half, and Wobi didn't get to contribute much on the left. You could see the the manager, the coach, scratching his head, <clears throat> um, digging his finger into his ear, <laughs> which is his uh, Yogi love poker tell um and so he makes his second play which is to bring on Welbeck and switches Iwobi to the right hand side and hey presto <clears throat> within moments uh Iwobi is doing the Mikatarian thing uh as we counter them twice in three minutes and score and I, I give him a lot of credit but it's more of a tactical thing than a personnel thing he's one of the guys apparently who can from the right hand side on his right foot Get, he's being more aggressive this season. He seems charged up. He seems more physical. He seems fitter. 
Uh, he talked about the manager telling him to just go for it, not not worry about things, just be aggressive. And he gets on there. I mean, when he first came in, he looked like a goal scorer for us, uh, whatever it was, a couple of seasons ago. Um, attacking, taking shots, scoring goals in his first few matches. Uh, and then he seemed to take on more of a role mentality. And in this, he went for it. Um, now, they were tired. And that's the benefit of them having come at us for so long and us having conceded. But, you know, we cut through them, as I said before, like a knife through butter on that right-hand side doing the Mkhitaryan thing. And I don't care if it's a Wobie or Mkhitaryan on the right-hand side, but somebody you can do cutbacks and balance out the other lads seemed to be what made all the difference here. Yeah, I, I cannot look beyond these changes that Emery is making that are turning the game without wondering how long it will be before Emery himself decides that these are the moves that need to be made from the start. So, I mean, Scott... I thought Iwobi did really well. I mean, I realize that there are some people that think that's narrative, but I think, you know, obviously his influence in the first goal is there. He makes the run that would not have been made by Ozil had had the switch not been made. Um, you know, and I, I think that is absolutely critical. For the second goal, uh, he's he's in there as well. So, I mean, is is his influence the difference, or is it simply the fact of having a player more natural in those spaces for you? Um, yeah, so it's hard a little bit to, to disentangle the difference between Wolbeck and Awobi coming on. Um, I thought both of them uh, really just gave more balance to the team. Um, I know one of the things that I've harped on is that having true wide players in wide positions is good, and the team plays better when you have um, people playing in their right positions. Uh, it's one of those tough ones where you know you want your best players on the pitch, but you also want people to be in their natural positions where they can succeed. So I think... Um, both Awobi and uh, Welbeck are um, comfortable out on the right. You know, Welbeck might be more of a, a natural striker, but he's very comfortable on the wing. He's played the wing quite a bit in his career. So I think both of them really just gave better balance to the team. Uh, one of the things that I noticed with Awobi is that he was able to make more combinations with uh, Ozil than uh, Ramsey did. Uh, Ramsey, um, the entire time that he was on the pitch, only made three passes to Ozil. Um, so that was 63 minutes. But during uh, Awobi's time on the pitch, he was able to do four in you know about a third of the amount of time. So that was very positive. Um, he did a really good job. It's it is tough to to say that Arsenal were the better team when he was on the sheet or on the field because almost all of those big chances that Arsenal gave up uh, were with uh, Awobi on the the pitch. So you know if you look at his Plus minus, I guess, if you were to, to say that, it wasn't great. But I think that the balance he brought to the team in the attacking sense was very positive. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think it would be easy to overlook Welbeck, um, you know, because obviously uh, not the longest of cameos and maybe not a player that we see as being super influential for us. But when he's come on, he, he admittedly mostly against weaker opposition, but here in the league, he has made a difference. It's his <laughs> sort of... I guess you can call it a pass. He, he has a heavy touch, and then he recovers it with a sliding touch to start the move for Ozil's goal. But but Danny Welbeck has made a difference, too. I mean, have we maybe overlooked his influence, and, and is he someone who the manager might start to call on more often? I think so. I think that that might be... He's such a pivotal player. I know we talked about this, I think, after the Europa League match, where he does so many things right, but he never doesn't... He doesn't quite have the finishing um, or the final ball that is really frustrating, but he really does well, I think, in that super sub role. 
Um, I think that that would actually be a, a very good um, situation to to use him in. I don't necessarily I'd want to start him from the beginning, um, I, but I think he can really come in and change a game when Arsenal need a goal. And I thought that, that was a, a good move. He adds a little bit different to the attack. He's more of an aerial player than our other two strikers that we have. Um, he can play out wide. He can play as a center striker. So he's a good, useful player to have around, and I like him. I don't disagree with any of that. Paul, would you like to disagree with any of that? No, I think uh, he, uh, I think we talked about it earlier in the pod season, but him and Iwobi, they got legs, uh, especially now that Iwobi, Iwobi looks like he can go for 90 minutes. Um, and uh, I think Emery's going to love them by the end of the season, what they bring. Um, and the other thing that, as we talk about this period late in the game, the other thing that stuck out was Ozil taking the armband and we saw him chase back, uh, kind of save the day around 90 minutes, uh, grab the ball, play it upfield. And a little before that, he does a long run to chase down the keeper to block a shot they're kicking out. And just generally, it was much more energized, enthusiastic, especially in the second half. It was the first time I thought Ozil's actually enjoying this. He he had a tough game. I mean, it was a struggle. His his numbers weren't in terms of involvement. It, it grew as the game went on, but it was still, you know, apart outside of the goal, um, you know, it was still a grind for him to really get a hold of the game. But I just thought his whole demeanor, um especially you you could say especially after Ramsey went but i don't want to uh, it's not to personalize it but it's it was just when the game began to change he kind of threw his shoulders back and, and kind of grabbed hold of it um as as a technical leader at least on the pitch and i thought for me this was a really big game for Ozil beyond the goal um it seemed like the first time in a while where i thought um he's establishing himself he, he's making the play. And I think pairing up Chak and Ozil in this game, when you compare how closely he and Chaka kind of aligned on either side and found each other and looked for each other in combination with Monreal, who was our second biggest pastor, passer, um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And Torreira seemed to free Chaka up to do his thing. Uh, I thought there was a much better balance this time around with the two uh, DMs or, or uh, central midfielders. I don't remember Chaka getting caught on the ball, even though they were kind of trying to press and Harry. So I thought there was a lot of things in and around Ozil that were that were pretty good. I think we finally may be cracking the midfield part of it. Now we just got to rationalize who's going to be the attacking three. Yeah, I, it is interesting. I mean, the one thing about Torreira is we were all desperate for Torreira to get in there. And he's gotten in there, and admittedly, we uh, we we continue to win. But you know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily fixed what we were kind of hoping it would fix in terms of our openness. Paul, I know you've got to go, so Paul's on Twitter at pausing in my pants. Thanks, Paul. And I believe he is already gone. That is how urgently he had to go. But that's okay because we were wrapping up anyway. Uh, Scott, just before we say goodbye to you, uh, I think you know one thing that that is interesting is the 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 coach after the game about Awobi said, you know, I or actually I think it was a Wobi who said this about himself, that the coach has told him he wants him to stay closer to the box. That he, he but, but a big thing he said is um, not to get so down on himself if he makes a mistake to just keep going. One thing I definitely believe about a Wobi is he was a player who wore his heart on his sleeve, and if he missed a pass or missed an opportunity, he really got down on himself in games with Snowball. 
And and that is a big thing for Awobi, I think, just not playing with that kind of burden on it on his shoulders. And if he's closer to the box, he doesn't have to make you know those long recovery runs that I don't think are necessarily his strength. You know, he has the physicality now, the the body size to be imposing in the attacking third, but he's never been the fittest in terms of you know covering the pitch box to box. So I mean, is is are these really the two keys to maybe unlocking better performances from Awobi, keeping him more in the final third, and just trying to lift some of that pressure he puts on himself of being perfect all the time. Yeah, because, I mean, I think when you're put in the position of a attacking wide player, uh, more often than not, things are not going to come off. It's look, a, look a at hard position. <laughs> exactly. So it's you got to just have the confidence to, you know, the last you know three didn't come off, but this time it's going to. Um, because those are, you know, if you make a mistake out there, usually it's not that big of a deal. The opponents are far away from your goal. They're on the wing. You can use that um, situation to, to press them and, you know, reset your defense. Not that big of a deal usually if, you know, you lose the ball out there. It's not like losing it in the, the middle of the, you know, the halfway mark. Um, so, and then, you know, when things do come off over there, you know, you're really going to make the defense scramble. You're going to be able to get in a position to have a cutback or you're going to be able to cut in onto, you know, so if he's coming in from the left, cut onto your right foot and have a, a chance at goal. So, it is an important thing to, you know, not dwell on, oh, I missed the pass. It's all right. Well, I'll, when the next one comes, I'll do it again. Um, I think that that is a, a great thing from him. And because he has the skills to be able to do it, um, it's just that I think it's a, a mental portion like you talked about and like he talked about. So I think that that is positive. And if he's able to do that, um, he could be um, a player that we really use. Yeah, I, I think physically he has the capabilities he he makes mistakes, but I mean, you look at Mkhitaryan, who is a guy who will misplace a three-yard pass for n- no reason whatsoever, and then make a, a brilliant assist or goal uh, thanks to his individual skill, and, and he doesn't seem to care or be weighed down by the mistakes he makes, and I think that that Iwobi can learn a lot from that, and if that's something that the coach is working on with him, I think that's great. I think keeping him closer to the final third, it sort of mirrors something that we've heard Sari saying about Hazard at Chelsea, saying that he doesn't want him to do so much work outside of the final third. He wants him to stay closer to goal and get the end product. And I'm not saying that Iwobi is Eden Hazard, who may arguably be the best player in the league right now, but it, it certainly seems that what Emery is teaching Iwobi to do seems to be more of a, a role like what Sorry wants Hazard to do. Stay closer to the, the box, focus on your end product, get more goals and assists, uh, let the team around you do the other work. And I, I am totally here for that because I think that will get the best out of Iwobi. Now, you know, you may say that's not what we need. Well, if that's not what we need, you need another player. I think that's where you're going to get the best from Iwobi. It is a challenge because right now Aubameyang is essentially a zero in that role. I mean, this was this was an anonymous performance. I don't think he can continue to start. Um, he is my favorite player in the team. I'll just come out and say it. I, I think he's a player I always wanted at Arsenal, and now he's here, and he's playing in a role that doesn't suit him, and it, it's not working for him. Uh, but even I have to acknowledge, if it's going to be at Lacazette up front, and I'm, I'm done waging war over that, I mean, it is what it is, then I think Aubameyang has to be dropped and be a rotational option. I mean, Scott, is that... Is that what this boils down to for you, that no matter how much you love Aubameyang, no matter how much you may believe he is a, a better striker than Lacazette, uh, whether you believe it or not, if this is the role the manager sees for him, it's probably best that he just goes to the bench for a while. Yeah, it's we've talked about this so many times, it's, it's tough. Um, I feel like if Ramsey's not going to be used as part of the double pivot, 
I think that his best role is probably in a, a 4-3-3 as one of the two more advanced of the midfielders. So he can start a little bit deeper and is used there. I don't think that he works well in the 10 role in the 4-2-3-1. I think he could probably do a job on the right-hand side, as we saw under Wenger. Um, he did a good job out there, but he doesn't want to do that. Um, and I think at this situation with him not signing a contract that he isn't really going to be a person that you really need to mess around with to make things work. You know, if he's able to, you know, fit into the roles that we have, great. Um, but I think that, you know, Arsenal need to, you know, stick with the people that are going to be here long term. So if Emery wants to do the four two three one, I think that you have to go with Ozil in the 10, um, you know, Granit Xhaka and Torreira and the double pivot. Um, then you have, you know, you're, you're picking your striker. Right now, um, Lacazette is playing really well. He's getting into good positions to shoot. Um, he's being involved in the buildup, which is really nice to see. Um, I still would like to see Aubameyang in the center forward role. Um, but, you know, I can see the argument right now on form that Lacazette is the better player. Um, then you have to, you know, pick the, the two wide spots. So do you want true wide players? Are you going to shoehorn a player in there? Um, one of the things that I find interesting is that in the second half, uh, Aubameyang did go to the right, and I know he did play um, for Dortmund on the right quite a bit instead of the left as, um, you know, he's played for Arsenal. So maybe that's something to try to see if, you know, maybe you can get going from there um, so you don't have to drop him right away. So maybe that's an option. Then you have a Wobi left, uh, Aubameyang right. Maybe that's the, the team that is able to get a little bit more balance. I, I don't know. I still think that leaves Bellerin isolated. Uh, I think we're still in that situation where we're putting, you know, round pegs into square holes and not quite working so it's a, a work in progress but i think that you know at least from this i think our conclusion is if we're going to stick four two three one that ramsey might be the the odd one out especially with his contract situation kind of saying that he's not going to be with the club long term yeah i don't disagree with any of that i i am obviously thrilled that project 24 rolls on thrilled that we are winning um maybe sometimes expectation is the issue right i I thought that we would be a dynamic attacking team that had this free-flowing, unstoppable presence in the attacking half as we worked through our issues defensively, and that just hasn't been the case. Having said that, you know we're not conceding goals at the level that I would have expected. We're conceding chances and expected goals, but we're not conceding the goals, um, and we're winning the games. So sometimes you just have to recalibrate your expectations to match what you're seeing, and recognize that winning is fun, and we continue to win, and that's great. Uh, we go visit Carriabag. We will Carriabags to Azerbaijan on Thursday. And, uh, you know, I mean, I expect that there will be heavy rotation. A lot of the big players won't even make the trip, but we will know that uh, in time. So later this week, and in fact, I've been saying later this week, given that there's a Thursday game, maybe, just maybe, we'll have to push to the following week when there's an international break to do that in the Spotlight episode, now that I mention it, on Mesut Ozil. So while I think we might try to hammer it out this week, given that we have to do a pod Thursday for the, the, um, the Europa League game, and uh, that we have uh, an international break after that, if it's okay with everyone, maybe we'll just push the Mesodozo in the spotlight to the following week so you have something to listen to during the international break, which would be fun. In any event, Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crap. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, look, uh, I am hopping on a flight very, very soon, which is why I had to schedule this recording at uh, an unorthodox time, which is why uh, Clive and Tim couldn't be here. They wanted to be, and uh, we are all the less uh, lesser. As you can see, just by virtue of my not speaking English properly, we are all less for not having them on the podcast. So uh, my apologies to them, but they will be on again in the near future. So uh, in any event, thanks for sticking with us despite those challenges and despite 
uh, my challenges and, and the, the panel is still wonderful and we appreciate them. In any event, we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Carry a bag now.